0: morning, church. One of my favorite ways to think about our community is as a family. You know, if you have a great family or if you are experiencing a great deal of loneliness this morning, God has created the church to be a place of belonging to be a place of healing and restoration. And so I pray that you experience that as we gather together week after week. Let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. God, you are a merciful God who initiates who intervenes, who pursues, who loves, who forgives, who turns away from anger, who abundantly pardons and blesses. And I pray that this morning you would give us a glimpse of what it looks like for a heavenly father to bring a moment of gracious discipline into our lives. Holy Spirit, we pray for your leadership over this next half hour. We ask that you would speak to us, those of us gathered here who are your people, who have been made alive through Christ's work, and those who have not yet received Christ, those who are not reconciled to you. We pray that you would speak with clarity this morning through your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Last Wednesday night, I drove the kids home from Kids Club, as I do every Wednesday night. But last Wednesday, I was really angry on the way home. I think that about 80% of that anger was the buildup of pressure from throughout that week. And 20% was probably related to the things the kids were doing or not doing on that drive home. And as we drove home, I was clear to tell them their part in the scenario, but I was completely silent about my own sin. And as we neared our home, nine-year-old Ava said, Dad, what does it mean to not let the sun go down on your anger? <laughs> now, she delivered that as a sweet, correct, a sweet question, but I knew that it was a correction, I sat there exposed and guilty. God had packed a powerful punch through the sweet question of a nine-year-old voice. I could not deny anymore in that car that I was the problem. God used her intervention to expose my own sin. God intervenes in our lives on the regular He sees us engrossed and entrenched in a particular sin pattern, and he intervenes. Why does he intervene? Because he loves us. Because he moves toward us. Why would God not leave the rebellious prodigal son to his rebellion? Because he's a God of grace and mercy. He's a sympathetic high priest who understands how deceitful sin can be. He's a loving father who understands how sin enslaves and how righteousness brings joy. Now, sometimes God's interventions are demonstrative, right? It's clear to us that God has done this thing, that God has brought a moment. But other times, maybe oftentimes, God works more quietly in the background of our lives, employing circumstances, employing relationships to reveal the slide of sinful rebellion that we're on. David is a man of astonishing faithfulness and surprising moments of spiritual compromise. If we go back to chapter 27, verse 1, I believe that we see in that verse David putting his foot on the top of a long slide of unfaithfulness. And throughout the next 16 months, David would slide away from God into spiritual rebellion and spiritual blindness. David says in his heart in chapter 27, verse 1, that there is nothing better for me than that I should leave the land of Israel and go to the land of the Philistines because if I stay, surely Saul will kill me. And so he goes into the land of the enemy Philistines and to survive in enemy territory, he has to deceive the enemy king. And in order to deceive the enemy king, he has to be particularly brutal to the people that he's attacking. And I believe that David has fastened himself into a vice grip of his own making. And now we have the answer of how God will respond to a man like this, a man he chose to be the future king of his people. And what we'll see in these two chapters is God's intervention. King Saul has also been the recipient of God's pursuits, but he has rejected and ignored the Lord. But David's heart has been touched by God's grace. David's life has been strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we'll see in this chapter, in these two chapters, how David responds to God's intervention. And that is to earnestly seek the Lord. So where is God attempting to intervene in your life this morning? Where might he be seeking to wake you up to a sin pattern in your life that has entrapped your heart? Where is he working to wake you up to a path that it, that's more glorifying to him and more satisfying to us? A path that's not on a spiritual slide towards rebellion and blindness, but one towards exalting and glorifying the Lord. And how do we respond in those moments when God intervenes? That's what we'll see this morning in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. Now, in the first point here, we see God's gracious intervention. And I'm taking all of chapter 29 and the first six verses of chapter 30 to help us see this point. It all shows God's intervention in David's life, the way that he interrupts the slide that David is descending down. In the first step of the intervention, David is delivered from a jam of his own making in the city of Aphek. This is all of chapter 29, the first, those 11 verses. Now, we're in the city of Aphek, the the Philistine city of Aphek, because the Philistines are preparing to go to war against Israel. And David is here in this massive buildup of troops because of his own lack of wisdom. And as the troops begin to review in front of the Philistine commanders, the Philistine commanders spot David and they say, why Achish is this Hebrew man here? And it's a good question because David is not just any Jewish man. David is the man that God has picked to be the next king of his people, Israel. And God's future king is now preparing to go to war against God's own people. And this jam is happening because of David's own compromise. And he has two choices in front of him. He can either confess the truth to Achish and risk his own life, or he can go ahead with what he's planning and go to war against his own people. But Achish, king of the Philistines, somehow defends David's presence in the army to his commanders. David's been with me for 16 months and I found nothing wrong with him. But the commanders aren't buying it. Look at chapter 29, verse 4. The commanders of the Philistines were angry. With Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him, Ziklag. He shall not go down with us into battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? How could David reconcile himself to King Saul of Israel? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David of whom they sing to one another and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Achish, we don't care what David has done for you over the last 16 months. What a better opportunity for him to get reconciled with his lord, the king, if he would betray the Philistines in this battle. King Saul would welcome him back with open arms. Now, we think David would be relieved That he's got his opportunity out. But look at verse 8 of chapter 29. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight the enemies of my Lord the King? I think what we're seeing here is David's spiritual blindness. He either can't see or won't see the truth of his actions over the last 16 months. I think what we see here is David has slid far enough down the slide that he can't or won't see his rebellion. He can't see how he's wounded and deceived Achish. Now, David is released from the vice grip by the objection of the Philistine commanders. But standing behind those commanders is a sovereign God who guides the hearts of kings like streams of water. A God who graciously intervenes into a mess that David has made himself and provides him with a way out. And listen, David doesn't deserve, I don't think, to be rescued from this. I think David deserves to endure the mess that he has made for himself. But who of us can't relate to God's mercy? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's step one of the intervention. In step two, David is delivered from mutiny in the city of Ziklag. This is the first six verses of chapter 30. David leaves at the insistence of King Achish of the Philistines, and he marches south towards Ziklag. It's about a 50-mile hike back to Ziklag. And they're able to get there on the third day, which which means they're, they're hustling to get back to Ziklag. They may have heard that something or suspected that something might be happening back at their home. Look at verse one of chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taking captive all the women and all who were in it, both small and great. And they killed no, no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now, the narrator tells us that the Amalekites performed this raid, but David has no way of knowing at this point who has done this deed. David has been raiding Amalekite villages and others for the last 16 months, leaving, in David's case, no man or woman alive to tell what David is actually doing. David has been taking their garments, their herds, and their flocks as bounty and paying off Achish, king of the Philistines, in order to secure his place in enemy territory. Now perhaps the Amalekites heard about the Philistine troop buildup in the north and they capitalized on the absence of their enemy armies. Now look at verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, a quick aside, this is the second or third time that it's just mentioned in passing that David has these two wives. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman, a covenant for life. And though God doesn't come out and condemn David for this action, the consequences of polygamy, I think anywhere we find it in the Bible, speak for themselves. It speaks to God's disapproval. He he holds out for us sometimes in narrative form the consequences of people's rebellion. And David's polygamy here would be an example of this. Now, they arrive to Ziklag, and it's a heartbreaking scene. The men weep knowing the grief and fear that their families are enduring. The smoldering debris fills their nostrils, their legs wobble, their bodies evaporate of strength. But the grief turns to distress for David because his men turn on him as their grief turns to anger. It's David's leadership that brought us to this point. He's the one who led us out into enemy territory to find protection from the hand of Saul. And to survive in enemy territory, it's David who deceived Achish. And to deceive Achish, David led us to be merciless and brutal. And this brutal treatment of our enemies over the past 16 months may well have provoked this retaliation from the Amalekites. And David begins to hear the murmurs of stoning. These men who came to him because he was someone they revered and respected turn against him. And God brings David a moment It's a moment of reckoning, a moment of discipline. But will David see it as such? Will David perceive God's hand in this as the bottom falls out of his life, that God's grace is actually in pursuit of him? The Philistines are about to attack the people of Israel. His foolishness has placed him on the Philistine side of that battle. His wives have been taken captive. The families of his men have been kidnapped. Their homes have been destroyed. And now his men talk of stoning him. This is a bitter, distressing low point for David. Sometimes God's intervention comes to us explicitly in the form of a clear message from God's word, delivered through preaching or teaching or counseling or the courageous word of a friend. Sometimes God's intervention is explicit. We see this later when Nathan comes and confronts David. But sometimes God's intervention comes more quietly in the form of circumstances, maybe delivered through a trial or consequence or disaster or disease. God regularly intervenes to interrupt our descent into sin and rebellion and spiritual blindness. God knows how sin entraps and God knows how righteousness brings life and flourishing. God intervenes because he loves us. It's His grace and His heart toward us that causes God to initiate and lean in. Is that not what Jesus' is coming to the earth teaches us? The incarnation of Jesus was an intervention by God into a blind and dark human race. Jesus came preaching with authority. He came performing powerful miracles. He came confounding religious leaders. He came confronting the self-righteous. He came modeling astounding obedience. He came inviting sinners to repentance. He came calling people everywhere to trust Him. He came offering to suffer in our place. He came dying in the place of sinners. He came rising from the dead over sin and death in victory. And He came reconciling us to God. The incarnation was intervention by God. That's what He came to do. God intervenes because He longs to show us grace. He loves us enough to sometimes bring a moment. That's what a loving, righteous father does. If you are left without discipline, then it is evidence that you are an illegitimate child. That's the point of Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. That's what the author there is making clear. If God intervenes, he does it because you are one of his precious children. He's redeemed you with Christ's blood. And so for the moment, Hebrews twelve eleven tells us, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Our Father graciously intervenes. If God is bringing you a moment this morning, just know that behind that moment is a God who loves you enough to lean in, who loves you enough to not leave you alone, who loves you enough to pursue and interrupt and intervene and to send circumstances and relationships and conversations in order to turn you back to Him. And this is what we see in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 30, we see David's earnest response. We see what David does when he perceives God's hand in the middle of his circumstances. Saul was at a bitter low point last week. He was at a bitter low point. And God intervened in Saul's life by allowing Samuel to come back from the dead and re-pronounce the judgment that he had given him already. And the whole point of this back and forth in the narrative in 1 Samuel is to help us to see the contrast between Saul's response and David's. David, in the first place, strengthens himself in the Lord. Look again at verse 6. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. David is greatly distressed because his people want to stone him because of their own bitter grief, but David doesn't sink into despair. David acknowledges God's power over the human threat. He sees that God stands above all things and that God is more powerful than this human threat in front of me. And the threat fades, the legitimate threat fades as God's power grows. You can't do this if your relationship with God is merely head knowledge. You can't. The threat will overwhelm you if your relationship with God is only stuck in your head. To weather these kinds of tight spots, you must know the Lord at the heart level. This has got to be a relationship where you are relying upon Him. You've got to be convinced that He can get you through this, that He can be counted on, that He consistently shows up, that He is with you and for you. He's in control. He's at work and he's better than anything you may lose by trusting him. And he is better than anything he might take away from you. Andrew Bonar was a 19th century Scottish pastor who knew how to strengthen himself in the Lord. He wrote in his diary on October 15th, 1864, of what he called his most grievous wound. His wife was seriously ill after giving birth to their child and he sat down as he did every day and he read his Bible between dinner and tea. And in his Bible reading that day, he came to Nahum chapter one, verse seven, which says very simply, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And then he wrote this. Little did I know how I would need this verse half an hour later, when his wife died from childbirth complications. But here's the thing, year after year, if you look at his journals, if you look at his diary, every year in mid-October, he would return to Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, and he would strengthen his heart in the Lord. What was he doing? He was understanding a promise of God. God says, I am a stronghold in times of trouble. That's the promise. And that promise is rooted in a truth about God. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. I am a stronghold in times of trouble. And that verse, that truth, that promise strengthened Andrew Bonar's hand in the Lord. And not just for minutes, for years into the future. Work diligently Church family, in times of relative calm, to increase your sense of confidence in God. Not merely head knowledge, let it ring true in your heart, so that when the storms rage, and they will, you trust Him as your anchor. You've experienced Him as your anchor. And you do this daily through the drip of depending on Him every day. You read the Bible, you pray, you sing, and you watch him work in your life and you notice how he's worked in your life. You've noticed how he's been faithful to you. So that when the hurricane winds begin, you are convinced this anchor, it will hold. David strengthens himself in the Lord. And then we see David seek the Lord. Look at verses seven and eight. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. Saul sought the Lord last week because he was afraid of the Philistine army. He was not grieved about his sin. He was not seeking to make amends. He was not hungry for reconciliation with God. He was in a tight spot and he wanted out. That's a very different thing than what we see in David. Saul hated the consequences of his sin. Saul was not ready to turn away from his sin. Those are two different things. David seeks the Lord in a way that seems different. Now, I admit to you that we don't see words of specific repentance in this narrative. Yet, as we progress through this chapter, we see an entirely different David than we saw in chapter 27. One moving toward God, not away from God. He asks Abiathar, the priest, for the ephod, a priestly garment. And David asks God, Should I pursue this band? Will I overtake them? And the immediacy of God's response hints at the earnestness and the sincerity of what David is doing here. But God's response also reveals the heart of God. I believe the prodigal David is returning and God sees him from a far way off. And it's as if God lifts up his garment so that he can run to his son, David. And when he arrives at David, he embraces David. But you can almost picture David, right? You can almost picture David ashamed, feeling undeserving of such a reception after rebelling against a God so good. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, the prodigal says in Jesus' parable. And it's almost as if the father understands the shame of the son. And so he says, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And to his servants, he says, Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was lost and now he has been found. He was dead and now he is alive. This is the heart of our God. When he intervenes in our lives because of his grace, when we slow down, when we turn from our sin and when we turn to him in earnest, we find in God the father of the prodigal son. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea." An earnest response to God's gracious pursuit leads to God's mercy. Every time, every time. Are you running from God this morning? It may not be a full run of rebellion in the opposite direction, but it may be an area of sin that you're just holding closely. God, you can have it all, but but this one's mine. Maybe you're coddling your anger like I was last Wednesday night in the car. Maybe you're nursing an emotional connection to someone other than your spouse. Maybe you're rebelling against God's design for sexuality or harboring bitterness towards someone. Or maybe you're sidelining the local church when it should be the very center of your life as a Christian. God will intervene. God will intervene in every one of those areas. It will be gracious because it comes from a gracious God, but it may be painful. And won't that pain depend on how quickly we respond to his pursuit? And it's the very fact that he loves you that provokes and propels him to come after you, to intervene. And when he intervenes, you may say, no, my sin is too grievous, it's too bad or I've rebelled for too long, or I've trampled on His mercy for too long. So if you need to return to Him this morning, do it. Abandon your sin, turn and live. Earnestly seek Him, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Or if you've never turned to Christ, if you've never turned to Him before, if you've never acknowledged your sin and turned to Christ Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And when you turn, you can join David in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And listen, friend, when you turn, you will find a God still intent to hammer out his sovereign purposes in your life. And that's what we see in David not just a simple turning, not just forgiveness, but a God who restores the momentum to David's service to him. David responds to God's word with faithful action. He believes God's word, so he acts upon God's word. And what we see is God acting with staggering power in response to David's genuine repentance, his genuine turning from his sin. Here are some of the ways that God shows up in staggering ways. David's men turn and follow him. That's not a given based on where they were emotionally. Look at verses nine and 10. So David set out from Ziklag and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook at Besor where, where those who were left behind stayed but David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. We see David's men turn and follow him. It's staggering the way that God has worked here, that God has restored their, his favor in their eyes. And then they come across an almost dead Egyptian. And David revives this Egyptian with food and water. Look at verses 13 and 14. And David said to the Egyptian, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, David has no idea who did this. We know because the narrator told us, but David doesn't know who did this. And so God in in a staggering act of mercy, delivers up a half-dead Egyptian who just so happened to be part of the raid and who happened to be left behind because he was sick. And he tells David exactly where this band is. And when they arrive in verse 16, they completely defeat the Amalekite force and David returns everything that had been stolen, flocks, herds, and most importantly, their wives and children. But more important than all of this is that David's heart is retuned to God's grace. God's grace retunes our heart. God's grace alters us. And as they return towards Ziklag, they come across these 200 men who were too exhausted from the 50-mile fast march to Ziklag that they cannot continue. And in verses 22 to 24, David speaks to his men about how they need to handle this. All the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because these 200 did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Now listen to David's response. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Listen to his courage. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as, is, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And David made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David arrives back in Ziklag, we're told that he divides the spoil that he's recovered to all the elders of Judah in all the lands where David and his men have roamed it is staggering to me how quickly the momentum returns into David's life. He's been on a slide toward rebellion for 16 months and when God intervenes and David earnestly turns, genuinely turns, God begins to work again in his life. When God intervenes in my life and in your life, when he brings a moment, when he graciously disciplines us, it can be tempting to freeze up with fear and shame. That feeling of guilt and sense of naked exposure can sideline us. But when God intervenes, whether it's through the loving confrontation of another person or the the raw circumstances of our lives, he intends for us to repent and he intends to shower us with mercy. And then he intends to keep hammering out his purposes in our lives. Don't sideline yourself. Earnestly turn from the sinful slide that you have been on and receive his mercy and get back to work. Humbled by his mercy and propelled by his grace. God knows that we're dust, he understands our frame, he knows that we are susceptible to sin. He knows how spiritual blindness works. And listen, we want to be a church family that cultivates this kind of understanding. A church family that's willing to go and restore, who's willing to go and be part of God's intervening work in one another's lives, to speak the truth in love. We know that we are a company of sinners turning from sin to Christ. And as recipients of God's grace ourselves, we understand the need to dispense God's grace to one another. And what a refreshing upstream swim we have to offer the world around us. If God's gracious intervention is underway in your life this morning, in some area of sin that you're holding back from Him, turn and earnestly seek Him, and you will find a God rich in mercy who longs to continue work in your life. As the team comes forward, let me close with a portion of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Would you stand and let's sing together.